This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Maddie Berry, Claire Hartley, MZ, Angela Romanger, Larissa Wheels, Jordy, and Asya Sarah. Thank you all so, so much for donating and being a part of making the Sleepy Podcast. And for anyone who is new to the show, all of these wonderful names I just read are brand new supporters of Sleepy on Patreon.com, which is a really fantastic site where you can go and support creators uh, of the work that you like. So if you listen to the Sleepy Podcast regularly and it helps you get a better night's sleep, wake up refreshed the next day, then consider being a part of making this show by going to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Even a dollar a month goes a long way, and at five dollars a month, you get access to our special Patreon poetry feed, 
where I send you poetry readings every month just for donating that are only for $5 patrons or more. Um, And you also get entered into all of our book raffles where I give away the copies of the books that we read on the show. And regardless of how much you donate, I'll read your name in the opening credits of the next show so you can be emblazoned on the halls of the Sleepy Podcast forevermore. So if you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music that you're hearing is by my good friend James Lipkowski and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Tonight I'm reading a book. Um, it's kind of special because the library in my little town uh, in Vermont has opened back up. And you can go in with a mask. Um, and it's just, it's been a while since I had been in the library. It's so nice to go back in there and look around for books that I think you would like to go to sleep to. I was walking through the uh, fiction section and saw this wonderful little copy of The Red Badge of Courage by Stephen Crane. This is a story that a lot of you have actually requested through reviews and uh, emails and Instagram messages. And I'm so happy to be reading it to you tonight. The writing is really really beautiful and pretty melodic considering the story content. Alright, that's enough of me yapping. Tonight, The Red Badge of Courage by Stephen Crane. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes and let me read to you. The cold passed reluctantly from the earth and the retiring fogs revealed an army stretched out on the hills, resting. As the landscape changed from brown to green, the army awakened and began to tremble with eagerness at the noise of rumors. It cast its eyes upon the roads, which were growing from long troughs of liquid mud to proper thoroughfares. A river amber tinted in the shadow of its banks, hurled at the army's feet, and at night, when the stream had become of a sorrowful blackness, one could see across it the red, eye-like gleam of hostile campfires set in the low brows of distant hills. Once a certain tall soldier developed virtues and went resolutely to wash a shirt, He came flying back from a brook, waving his garment banner-like. He was swelled with the tale he had heard from a reliable friend 
who had heard it from a truthful cavalryman, who had heard it from his trustworthy brother, one of the orderlies at the division headquarters. He adopted the important air of a herald in red and gold. We're going to move tomorrow, sure, he said pompously to a group in the company street. We're going way up the river, cut across, and come around behind him. To his attentive audience, he drew a loud and elaborate plan of a very brilliant campaign. When he had finished, the blue-clothed men scattered into small arguing groups between the rows of squat brown huts. A teamster who had been dancing upon a cracker box with the hilarious encouragement of two score soldiers was deserted. He sat mournfully down. Smoke drifted lazily from a multitude of quaint chimneys. It's a lie. That's all it is, a thundering lie, said another private loudly. His smooth face was flushed and his hands were thrust sulkily into his trousers' pockets. He took the matter as an affront to him. I don't believe that darned old army is ever going to move. We're set. I've got ready to move eight times in the last two weeks, and we ain't moved yet. The tall soldier felt called upon to defend the truth of a rumor he himself had introduced. He and the loud one came near to fighting over it. A corporal began to swear before the assemblage. He had just put a costly board floor in his house, he said. During the early spring, he had refrained from adding extensively to the comfort of his environment because he had felt that the army might start on the march at any moment. Of late, however, he had been impressed that they were in a sort of eternal camp. Many of the men engaged in a spirited debate. One outlined in a peculiar, lucid manner all the plans of the commanding general. He was opposed by men who advocated that there were other plans of campaign. They clamored at each other, numbers making futile bids for the popular attention. Meanwhile, the soldier who had fetched the rumor bustled about with much importance. He was continually assailed by questions. What's up, Jim? The army is going to move. Ah, what are you talking about? How you know it is? Well, you can believe me or not, just as you like. I don't care, hang. There was much food for thought in the manner in which he replied. He came near to convincing them by disdaining to produce proofs. They grew much excited over it. There was a youthful private who listened with eager ears to the word of the tall soldier and to the varied comments of his comrades. After receiving a fill of discussions concerning marches and attacks, he went to his hut and crawled through an intricate hole that served it as a door. 
He wished to be alone with some new thoughts that had lately come to him. He lay down on a wide bunk that stretched across the end of the room. In the other end, cracker boxes were made to serve as furniture. They were grouped about the fireplace. A picture from an illustrated weekly was upon the log walls, and three rifles were paralleled on pegs. Equipments hung on handy projections, and some tin dishes lay upon a small pile of firewood. A folded tent was serving as a roof. The sunlight, without beating upon it, made it glow a light yellow shade. A small window shot an oblique square of whiter light upon the cluttered door. The smoke from the fire at times neglected the clay chimney and wreathed into the room, and this flimsy chimney of clay and sticks made endless threats to set ablaze the whole establishment. The youth was in a little trance of astonishment. So they were at last going to fight. On the morrow, perhaps, there would be a battle, and he would be in it. For a time he was obliged to labor to make himself believe. He could not accept with assurance an omen that he was about to mingle in one of these great affairs of the earth. He had, of course, dreamed of battles all his life, of vague and bloody conflicts that had thrilled him with their sweep and fire. In visions he had seen himself in many struggles. He had imagined people secure in the shadow of his eagle-eyed prowess. But awake, he had regarded battles as crimson blotches on the pages of the past. He had put them as things of the bygone, with his thought images of heavy crowns and high castles. There was a portion of the world's history which he had regarded as the time of wars, but it, he thought, had been long gone over the horizon and had disappeared forever. From his home, his youthful eyes had looked upon the war in his country with distrust. There must be some sort of play affair. He had long despair of witnessing a Greek-like struggle. Such would be no more, he had said. Men were better or more timid. Secular and religious education had effaced the throat-grappling instinct or else firm finance held and checked the passions. He had burned several times to enlist. Tales of great movements shook the land. They might not be distinctly Homer, but there seemed to be much glory in them. He had read of marches, sieges, conflicts, and he had longed to see it all. His busy mind had drawn for him large pictures extravagant in color, lurid with breathless deeds. But his mother had discouraged him. She had affected to look with some contempt upon the quality of his war ardor and patriotism. 
she could calmly seat herself and with no apparent difficulty given many hundreds of reasons why he was of vastly more importance on the farm than on the field of battle. She had had certain ways of expression that told him that her statements on the subject came from a deep conviction. Moreover, on her side, was his belief that her ethical motive in the argument was impregnable. At last, however, he had made firm rebellion against his yellow light thrown upon the color of his ambitions. The newspapers, the gossip of the village, his own picturings, had aroused him to an uncheckable degree. They were in truth fighting finely down there. Almost every day the newspapers printed accounts of a decisive victory. One night, as he lay in bed, the winds had carried him to the clangering of the church bell as some enthusiast jerked the rope frantically to tell the twisted news of a great battle. This voice of the people rejoicing in the night had made him shiver in a prolonged ecstasy of excitement. Later, he had gone down to his mother's room and had spoken thus, Ma, I'm going to enlist. Henry, don't you be a fool, his mother had replied. She had then covered her face with the quilt. There was an end to the matter for the night. Nevertheless, the next morning he had gone to a town that was near his mother's farm and had enlisted in a company that was forming there. When he had returned home, his mother was milking the brindle cow. Four others stood waiting. Ma, I've enlisted, he said to her diffidently. There was a short silence. The Lord's will be done, Henry. She had finally replied and then continued to milk the brindle cow. When he had stood in the doorway with his soldier's clothes on his back and with the light of excitement and expectancy in his eyes almost defeating the glow of regret for the home bonds, he had seen two tears leaving their trails on his mother's scarred cheeks. Still, she had disappointed him by saying nothing whatever about returning with his shield or on it. He had privately primed himself for a beautiful scene. He had prepared certain sentences which he thought could be used with touching effect. But her words destroyed his plans. She had doggedly peeled potatoes and addressed him as follows. You watch out, Henry, and take good care of yourself in this here fighting business. You watch out and take good care of yourself. Don't go a-thinking you can lick the whole rebel army at the start, because you can't. You're just one little feller among a whole lot of others, and you've got to keep quiet and do what they tell you. I know how you are, Henry. I've knit you eight pairs of socks, Henry, 
and I put in all your best shirts because I want my boy to be just as warm and comfortable as anybody in the army. Whenever they got holes in them, I want you to send them right away back to me so as I can darn them. And at last, be careful and choose your company. There's lots of bad men in the army, Henry. The army makes them wild, and they like nothing better than the job of leading off a young fella like you, as he's never been away from home much and has always had a mother and are learning him to drink and swear. Keep clear of them folks, Henry. I don't want you to ever do anything, Henry, that you'd be ashamed to let me know about. Just think as if I was watching you. You keep that in your mind, always. I guess you'll come out about right. You must always remember your father, too, child. And remember he never drunk a drop of liquor in his life and seldom swore a cross oath. I don't know what else to tell you, Henry, excepting that you must never do no shirking child on my account. If so be a time comes when you have to be killed or do a mean thing, why, Henry, don't think of anything except what's right, because there's many a woman has to bear up against such things these times. And the Lord will take care of us all. Don't forget about the socks and the shirts, child. And I put a cup of blackberry jam with your bundle. Because I know you like it above all things. Goodbye, Henry. Watch out. And be a good boy. He had, of course, been impatient under the ordeal of this speech. It had not been quite what he expected and he had borne it with an air of irritation. He departed, feeling vague relief. Still, when he had looked back from the gate, he had seen his mother kneeling among the potato parings. Her brown face, upraised, was stained with tears, and her spare form was quivering. He bowed his head and went on, feeling suddenly ashamed of his purposes. From his home, he had gone to the seminary to bid adieu to many schoolmates. They had thronged about him with wonder and admiration. He had felt the gulf now between them and had swelled with calm pride. He and some of his fellows who had donned blue were quite overwhelmed with privileges for all the one afternoon and it had been a very delicious thing. They had strutted. A certain light-haired girl had made vivacious fun at his martial spirit, but there was another and darker girl whom he had glazed at steadfastly and thought she grew demure and sad at the sight of his blue and brass. As he had walked down the path between the rows of oaks, he had turned his head and detected her at a window watching his departure. As he perceived her, she had immediately begun to stare up through the high tree branches of the sky. He had seen a good deal of flurry and haste in her movements, and she changed her attitude. He often thought of it 
On the way to Washington, his spirit had soared. The regiment was fed and caressed at station after station until the youth had believed that he must be a hero. There was a lavish expenditure of bread and cold meats, coffee and pickles and cheese. As he basked in the smiles of the girls and was patted and complimented by old men, he had felt growing within him the strength to do mighty deeds of arms. After complicated journeying with many pauses, there had come months of monotonous life in a camp. He had had the belief that real war was a series of death struggles with small time in between for sleep and meals. But since his regiment had come to the field, the army had done little but sit still and try to keep warm. He was brought then gradually back to his old ideas. Greek-like struggles would be no more. Men were better or more timid. Secular and religious education had effaced the throat-grappling instinct or else firm finance held in check the passions. He had grown to regard himself merely as a part of a vast blue demonstration. His province was to look out as far as he could for his personal comfort. For recreation, he could twiddle his thumbs and speculate on the thoughts which must agitate the minds of the generals. Also, he was drilled and drilled and reviewed and drilled and drilled and reviewed. The only foes he had seen were some pickets along the riverbank. They were a sun-tanned philosophical law who sometimes shot reflectively at the blue pickets. When reproached for this afterward, they usually expressed sorrow and swore by their gods that the guns had exploded without their permission. The youth on guard duty one night conversed across the stream with one of them. He was a slightly ragged man who spat skillfully between his shoes and possessed a great fund of bland and infantile assurance. He was a slightly ragged man who spat skillfully between his shoes and possessed a great fund of bland and infantile assurance. The youth liked him personally. Yank, the other had informed him, you're a right dumb good feller. The sentiment floating to him upon the still air had made him temporarily regret war. Various veterans had told him tales. Some talked of gray, bewhiskered hordes who were advancing with relentless curses and chewing tobacco with unspeakable valor. Tremendous bodies of fierce soldiery who were sweeping along like the Huns. Others spoke of tattered and eternally hungry men who fired despondent powders. They'll charge through the hell's fire and brimstone to get a hold on a haversack, and such stomachs ain't lasting long, he was told. From the stories, the youth imagined red, 
live bones sticking out through slits in the faded uniforms. Still, he cannot put a whole faith in veterans' tales, for recruits were their prey. They talked much of smoke, fire, and blood, but he cannot tell how much might be lies. They persistently yelled, fresh fish, at him, and were in no wise to be trusted. However, he perceived now that it did not greatly matter what kind of soldiers he was going to fight, so long as they fought, which fact no one disputed. There was a more serious problem. He lay in his bunk pondering upon it. He tried to mathematically prove to himself that he would not run from a battle. Previously, he had never felt obliged to wrestle too seriously with this question. In his life, he had taken certain things for granted, never challenging his belief in ultimate success and bothering little about means and roads. But here he was, confronted with a thing of moment. It had suddenly appeared to him that perhaps in a battle he might run. He was forced to admit, as far as war was concerned, he knew nothing about himself. A sufficient time before he would have allowed the problem to kick its heels at the outer portals of his mind, but now he felt compelled to give serious attention to it. A little panic fear grew in his mind as his imagination went forward to a fight he saw a hideous possibility. He contemplated the lurking menaces of the furniture and failed in an effort to see himself standing stoutly in the midst of them. He recalled his visions of broken bladed glory but in the shadow of the impending tumult he suspected them to be impossible pictures. He sprang from the bunk and began to pace nervously to and fro. Good Lord, what's the matter with me? He said aloud. He felt that in this crisis his laws of life were useless. Whatever he had learned of himself was here of no avail. He was an unknown quantity. He saw that he would again be obliged to experiment as he had in early youth. He must accumulate information of himself, and meanwhile he resolved to remain close upon his guard, lest those qualities of which he knew nothing should everlastingly disgrace him. Good Lord, he repeated in dismay. After a time, a tall soldier slid dexterously through the hole. The loud private followed. They were wrangling. That's all right, said the tall soldier as he entered. He waved his hands expressively. You can believe me or not, just as you like. All you gotta do is sit down and wait as quiet as you can. Then pretty soon you'll find out I was right. His comrade grunted stubbornly. For a moment he seemed to be searching for a formidable reply. Finally he said, 
Well, you don't know everything in the world, do you? Didn't say I know everything in the world, retorted the other sharply. He began to stow various articles snugly into his knapsack. The youth, pausing in his nervous walk, looked down at the busy figure. Going to be a battle, sure, is there, Jim? he asked. Of course there is, replied the tall soldier. Of course there is. You just wait till tomorrow, and you'll see one of the biggest battles ever was. You just wait. Thunder, said the youth. Oh, you'll see fighting this time, my boy. What'll be regular out-and-out fighting? Added the tall soldier with the air of a man who was about to exhibit a battle for the benefit of his friends. Huh, said the loud one from the corner. Well, remarked the youth, like as not this story will turn out just like the mothers did. Not much it won't, replied the tall soldier, exasperated. Not much it won't. Didn't the cavalry all start this morning? He glared about him. No one denied his statement. The cavalry started this morning, he continued. They say there are hardly any cavalry left in camp. They're going to Richmond, or someplace, while we fight all the Johnnies. It's some dodge like that. The regiment's got orders, too. A feller I once seen him to go headquarters told me a little while ago. And they're raising blazes all over camp. Anybody can see that. Shucks, said the loud one. The youth remained silent for some time. Alas, he spoke to the tall soldier. Jim. What? How do you think the regiment will do? Oh, they'll fight all right, I guess, after they once get into it, said the other one with cold judgment. He made fine use of third person. There's been heaps of fun poked at him, because they're new, of course, and all that. But they'll fight all right, I guess. Think any of the boys will run? persisted the youth. Oh, there may be a few of them on, but there's them kind in every regiment, especially when they first goes under fire, says the other one, in a tolerant way. Of course, it might happen that the whole kitten caboodle might start and run if some big fighting came first off, and then again they might stay and fight like fun. But you can't bet on nothing. Of course, they ain't never been under fire yet, and it ain't likely they'll lick the whole rebel army all to once the first time. But I think they'll fight better than some, if worse than others. That's the way I figure. They'll call the regiment fresh fish and everything, but the boys come out of good stock, and most of them will fight like sin after they once get shooting, he added, with a mighty emphasis on the last four words. Oh, you think you know, began the loud soldier with scorn. The other turned savagely upon him. They had a rapid altercation in which they fastened upon each other very strange epithets. 
the youth at last interrupted them. Did you ever think you might run yourself, Jim? he asked. On concluding the sentence, he laughed as if he had meant to aim a joke. The last soldier also giggled. The tall private waved his hand. Well, said he profoundly, I thought it might get too hot for Jim Conklin in some of these scrimmages, and if a whole lot of boys started and run, why, I suppose I'd start and run. And if I once started to run, I'd run like the devil, and no mistake. But if everybody was a standing and a fighting, why, I'd stand and fight by Jimny, I would. I'll bet on it. Huh, said the loud one. The youth of this tale felt gratitude for these words of his comrade. He had feared that all the untried men possessed a great and correct confidence. He now was in a measure reassured. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.